0: This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies in for Terry Gross. David Johansson is a founding member of the New York Dolls, a legendary 1970s band that never sold many records but paved the way for punk rock. He's also performed in his persona Buster Poindexter, a pompadour-wearing lounge lizard. And he's played the blues with his band David Johansson and the Harry Smiths. Johansson is the subject of a new Showtime documentary co-directed by Martin Scorsese and David Tedeschi called Personality Crisis One Night Only. Much of the documentary is built around Johansson's 2020 performance at the Cafe Carlisle in New York City as Buster Poindexter. It also includes new and archival interviews with him and others. Here's a clip from the documentary with the English singer and songwriter Morrissey. He says he was obsessed with the New York Dolls as a teenager because they brought a sense of danger to rock. Their music was loud and rough, but more than that. So here were boys who were calling themselves dolls, and they looked like prostitutes, male prostitutes, uh, which at the time, you have to remember, it was a long time ago, and all all of that kind of thing was really taboo. English singer Morrissey from the new Showtime documentary about the New York Dolls. Terry Gross spoke to David Johansson in 2004. The surviving members of the band had just reunited at their request of Morrissey for a festival in England. Their performance was recorded on a CD and DVD called The Return of the New York Dolls, live from Royal Festival Hall. The interview starts with a track from the album called Looking for a Kiss. The dolls used to play this one in the '70s. It was written by David Johansen, who also sings lead.
1: When I say I'm in love, you best believe I'm in love, LUV. you just before the dawn All the other kids are just dragging along I couldn't believe the way you seem to be Never in a place that used to say to me I can go walk every way I, go, I gotta have my fun I gotta get some fun I gotta keep on moving Can't stop the it's out dark This is never done and when I tell you you got no time for this. I just got a can of flour to miss. If there's one reason, I'm telling you this, I feel bad. I've been looking for a kiss. Well
2: So when you were on stage, you know, with the with the reunited and and the new version of the dolls, and you were doing the old doll songs, did you have any like flashbacks to things that you had totally forgotten about like did memories like surface of things that were really interesting that you had completely forgotten about until you were back in that setting again
1: well i have memories but god they're vague you know <laughs> i mean i remember the first time we made a record with Todd Rundgren and the only thing i remember is the lights on the control board i thought they were really pretty
2: Mm. <laughs> and that's really
1: <laughs> the only memory I Any have. Any historian
2: making, would want to know all about that.
1: <laughs> of making that first record. That's the, You know, people think I'm kidding when they ask, well, what was it like making that first record? Because it you know, kind of became this uh, benchmark kind of record. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really the only memory I have of it. But, uh, you know, the thing that struck me was I had to kind of sit down and listen to the music and write the words down and learn them and
2: oh you had I to relearn thought- your own songs
1: Yeah, because, you know, I hadn't sung them Mm -hmm. in God knows how long, you know. I mean, it wasn't like I had to relearn them from scratch because they kind of come back to you. But I had to have some kind of thing to look at. And, you know, I find that when I write something, it goes into my head better than if I Mm
2: -hmm.
1: just try to memorize it. So I was writing, for example, like human being. And I was thinking... God, how did I write that song? This is great. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it really holds up, you know. It's kind of like a declaration that I think is timeless. So there's a lot of uh, stuff like that in the songs, which... Let me explain something to you. There was a time, you know, when when we started The Dolls and we were really such a gang and it was like us against the world and we were really trying to evolve music into something new and uh, it was you know very kind of almost militant to us and then over the years you know in the history books you know like the the Rolling Stone complete encyclopedia of rock and roll or something you know you, you look in the appendix and see where your name is and see what they say about you. It's not like you buy the book. And they would always say, you know, (laughs) they were trashy, they were flashy, they were drug addicts, they were drag queens, you know. And that whole kind of trashy blah, blah, blah thing, I think over the years kind of settled in my mind as, oh, yeah, that's what it was, you know. And then by going back to it and uh deconstructing it and then putting it back together again i realized that you know it really is art and that some critic at one time had come up with this catch-all phrase that as you know once somebody says it then everybody just looks it up and they say it because nobody does right nobody has an original idea
2: In spite of the fact that you don't remember a whole lot about uh, parts of the early days of the dolls do you remember writing the song personality crisis
1: um, well, you know, I don't remember exactly sitting down and writing the words, but I remember where I got the the name because I was I was kind of like an acolyte in Charles Ludlam's ridiculous theater when I was a kid. When this is when I was, you know, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. And uh, and let's just Charles, describe
2: what Charles Ludlam's the- theater was. It he used to dress and drag a lot as the leading lady and uh, these like Greta Garbo kind of roles. And
1: yeah, but it was so much more than that. It yeah. was um, really <laughs> very intelligent stuff that he used to do, and he used to combine a lot of genres of mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. you know classical playwriting and you know like Moliere. He would put in with. Uh, something kitschy that was present you know present-day stuff and he would put he would make this melange of ideas that were just so they would come out so original and brilliant that you know people throw the word genius around but he was actually a genius he was one of the most intelligent uh, people I think I've ever met but I think one day he w- we were at a rehearsal or something and he just said Oh, God, I'm having a personality crisis. And I just thought, <laughs> oh, that's really good. And I wrote it down, you know, personality crisis. And that's really all I remember about uh, writing a song, and the song came from that.
2: Well, why don't we hear Personality cri- Crisis as performed by the New York Dolls at the Meltdown Festival uh, over the summer. So um, this is from The Return of the New York Dolls. <laughs>
1: we
0: the New York Dolls. We're listening to Terry's 2004 interview with David Johansson, who co-founded the band in the 1970s. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. Let's get back to Terry's 2004 interview with David Johansson, who co-founded the band The New York Dolls. They spoke when the band reunited for a festival in England. Their performance was recorded on a CD and DVD called The Return of the New York Dolls, Live from Royal Festival Hall. Johansson is the subject of a new documentary on Showtime, co-directed by Martin Scorsese.
2: In in the liner notes for for the DVD and the CD, uh, you, you write about Arthur Kane. This was this was his last performance. He was the bass player of the band, and it was it was Arthur Kane who who knocked on your door and recruited you to be in the Dolls when the band was being formed. Um, uh, he 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 died just a, a few weeks after the concert. Did you even know he was sick?
1: No, and neither did he. Uh, and you know, he had had this incredible life, Arthur, and he was just this really brilliant guy who had this incredible insight into uh, reality. That was <laughs> it was just uh, one step to the left of probably <laughs> the most radical people I had ever met at that point. And I don't even mean, you know, politics. I just mean the way he saw things. And, uh, they were always spot on. And he was just so brilliant to me. And then he kind of, he, he had been come from this family that was just like hell on earth. And, uh, he got a taste for the booze and uh, went through like a lot of years of just being drunk all the time. And he would, he got, I remember he got to this point where you would just say, Hi, Arthur, and he would just say, Woof. His only word became <laughs> woof. Anyway, he went through all this stuff. I mean, I can't begin to tell you in his life. He fell out a window. He did this. He got hit by a car. He did this. He did that. And then he came out the other side. And uh, he got involved with, like, you know, the Mormons and became the librarian at the family history uh, office at the Mormon tabernacle. And he, so he was like this Mormon, but with this really kind of demented uh, <laughs> outlook on life. That So he wasn't, you know, like a proselytizer, but um, he just was so wonderful and uh well, let, and he had this very high voice and he was f- six foot five or something
2: let, let's talk about how he did recruit you for the band he knocked on your door in your apartment in manhattan you were what around 19 or something yeah what did, what did he tell you about this new band
1: well there was a guy who lived in my building and who i used to kind of you know jam with and strum guitars and he was this colombian guy who played bongos and we used to just sit around and play music and he knew billy mercia who was the original drummer in the dolls and um told these guys that uh who were looking for a singer that i was a singer and i was he thought i was a pretty good singer and so uh One day, Arthur was just at my door with Billy, and Arthur was about three feet taller than Billy, and he just said, uh, "Um, I hear you're a singer. And I said, yeah, and I invited them in, and we started talking, and they said they had a band, and they were looking for a singer, and I was looking for a band, and uh, we just really, that day, actually, we left my apartment and went like four blocks up the street to Johnny Thunder's apartment, where there was some drums and guitars and stuff, and started to play, and we were a band essentially.
2: What were some of the things that you knew you didn't want to be about? The kind of music that you thought had dead ended?
1: Oh, you know, at that time there was like a these interminable drum solos and. You know what happens when the drum solo stops. It's the worst. It's Then the bass takes a solo. <laughs> and stuff like that, you know. And we just wanted to kind of have some really wham-bam songs. And, I mean, for me, the whole thing was like, if you have to compare it to something like a Little Richard kind of presentation. And I can remember when I was... Really young and I would go to the Murray the K shows, you know, and I saw Mitch Ryder and, you know, these shows had 30 acts and everybody would come out and do two or three minutes and Mitch Ryder would come out and do a med- medley of his three big hits. He would come out in like kind of like a tuxedo and <laughs> within <laughs> 45 seconds he was half naked and sweating <laughs> like a pig and we just wanted to make an explosion, you know, of excitement. So that's what was missing, you know, uh rock and roll had become very kind of pedantic and meandering and uh it was looking for something but it was like an actor in search of a play or something, you know.
2: Um, Now, on the album cover of the New York of the of the album, the New York Dolls, um, you're all dressed in this kind of trashy drag with a lot of eye makeup and lipstick. You're wearing a bouffant wig. I assume it's a wig.
1: (laughs) No, it wasn't a wig. It wasn't a wig. No.
2: You teased your hair for it? Yeah, well,
1: somebody teased it. Somebody teased
2: it, right. And you're wearing what looks like capri pants and high-heeled clogs and open cardigan revealing your bare chest. And you're staring at yourself in the mirror of a makeup compact. Right. And the band's name is written in lipstick. Right. Um, For those of us who didn't get to see you on stage, how did that compare with how you actually looked on stage?
1: Well, that was probably, you know, I mean... I think, you know, to the average civilian, it probably didn't look any different. But to us, we were, like, dressing up a little bit more, make it a little special for the um, <laughs> for the record cover, you know. Um, you know, Sylvain was in the rag trade with Billy. They had this little sweater company, and... Called Truth, while well, they sold it to this company called Truth and Soul. They used to make these poor boy sweaters. They had a loom. And through that, they knew a lot of people who uh, actually are very kind of famous designers now, but who were just getting started. And I think it was like Betsy Johnson and... These uh, women that she used to work with, they had a store in St. Mark's Place and they knew a photographer and they knew a makeup guy and they knew this and that. You know, we didn't know anything about that. So I think they helped to facilitate that photo session.
2: What inspired your interest in or willingness to be in a kind of drag for performances? I mean, you mentioned you had been with um, with the, Charles Ludlum's Ridiculous Theater, and drag was often a part of their performances in in theater. Um, so where did you see it fitting into your music?
1: Well, you know, we were on... We were, you know, the, the hotbed of uh, revolution at that time was, you know, St. Mark's Place and 2nd Avenue, and... <laughs> Through that, you know, it's, there were so many artists there and, uh, you know, actors and people who were doing these plays, like the ridiculous people, and there was, you know, filmmakers and poets and painters, and and uh, we were the band of that crowd. I mean, it wasn't like we were the band of even New York City, you know, we were the band, basically, of the East Village, you know, and... Um, It wasn't so much like a sexual thing because, you know, like sexuality refers to like biological aspects. It was more like a gender thing, you know, and uh, gender is like, you know, like the cultural differences that grow up around the biological differences. So so instead of like male and female, like gender is really masculine and feminine, right? I think the trick for us to, at the time was to decide which characteristics were sex and which were gender, you know. And, uh, you know, because there's certain things males do and there's certain things females do. I mean, the universe didn't make two sexes for nothing.
2: Did a lot lot, a lot of people early on assume that you were gay because of the way you dressed in performance or because of the
1: Um I don't know. I don't know. I mean it was obviously we weren't gay. I mean, you know, I but maybe to some people it was, you know. Uh-huh. You know how some people I mean to some people everybody's gay, you know? <laughs> like you could say like uh, you could be talking to somebody and go, oh that Hitler and they go, gay. You know, so I mean some <laughs> some people just think everybody's gay, but I don't know. We were like these kind of street kids from uh You know, from St. Mark's Place, you know, and um, we just had this idea that, you know, at the time masculine meant strong and assertive, feminine meant weak and demure, and this was a time of like redefinition of the roles, you know, it was Uh overdue, and uh, it was just part of evolution, I think, you know, and uh, everything kind of transcends and uh, goes beyond what went before and otherwise what's the use of doing anything you know
0: david johansen co-founder of the 1970s band the new york dolls speaking with terry gross in 2004 he's the subject of a new documentary co-directed by martin scorsese on showtime titled personality crisis one night only later justin chang reviews the new film the eight mountains i'm dave davies and this is fresh air
2: this message comes from NPR sponsor, TeleDoc Health. Discover a whole new way to manage your overall health, both body and mind, with Primary 360 from TeleDoc Health. It's primary care reimagined. You'll have access to board-certified doctors, a dedicated care team, health devices provided at no cost, and in-person care when needed. You'll also receive a personalized care plan to reach new levels of health. Experience it now at TeladocHealth.com
1: 360.
0: Hey, this is Seth Kelly, producer at Fresh Air.
1: And this is Molly C.V. Nesper, digital producer at Fresh Air.
0: We co-write the weekly Fresh Air newsletter.
1: It's recaps of the week, staff recommendations gems from the archive, and a glimpse at who's coming on the show soon, all in one place.
0: It's also a fun peek behind the scenes. What goes into the producing and editing of the interviews, and a chance to meet the people who make Fresh Air.
2: You can subscribe by going to WHYY.org slash Fresh Air.
0: You'll hear from us soon. Now, back to the show. Let's get back to Terry's 2004 interview with David Johansson. In 1971, he co-founded the band The New York Dolls. The band never sold many records, but it's become something of a legend, in part for setting the stage for the punk rock movement. Johansson later performed in the persona of lounge singer Buster Poindexter. A new documentary, co-directed by Martin Scorsese and David Tedeschi, titled Personality Crisis, One Night Only, about David Johansen, is currently streaming on Showtime. When Terry spoke with him in 2004, the surviving members of the band had reunited for a festival in England. Their performance was recorded on the CD, The Return of the New York Dolls, live from the Royal Festival Hall.
2: The band was so originally so used to performing in, like, in manhattan in the village where where people like knew the band the people who came were a part of the same Like arts subculture that the band was a part of but when you went on the road in america Did you start playing in places where people weren't? uh, Kindred spirits in the same way and they didn't necessarily get what you were doing. They didn't know how to react to it
1: Um, Yes, and no. I mean it's very interesting, like, you know, there were, like, Rust Belt places, you know, like Detroit and Cleveland and places like that. The People would go crazy for us, and they would come to the shows all dressed up, you know, and Chicago, and, you know, we were really well-received in Los Angeles and San Francisco, and we used to play a lot in Florida, you know, Miami and we used to play in Atlanta and be very well accepted and then we used to also, you know, we were we were friends with um Leonard Skinner at the time. Uh, we were kind of kindred spirits and we used to we would go on tours of like state fairs and like tertiary markets in Missouri together and uh We would have a great time, you know. I know in Memphis, I got arrested on stage one night for allegedly, you know, it was like the Alice Tully Hall of Memphis. I mean, it was this nice, clean room, and there had been articles in the newspaper that we were coming to uh, pied piper all the children to uh, the end of the world or whatever, and uh, we thought it was funny when we read it, but I actually got arrested on stage and went to uh, the Huskow in uh, Memphis, which is, I was dressed like Liza Minnelli at the time, so it wasn't the most (laughs) relaxing night I ever had.
2: How how, how do people respond to you in prison? (laughs)
1: in jail
0: yeah
1: I just like hit under these like Lysol smelling like army blankets and then this guy woke up and he went like oh damn you're David Johansson and I was like quiet 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 and then he woke up this bear and the bear was growling and I was like oh my god my knees were like you know rattling under these covers but I got bailed out at like dawn
2: What were the charges? Uh,
1: Inciting a riot. The cops, you know, the cops wanted to mess the thing up and they started beating on kids because they got up and danced. And I stopped the music and I started explaining to this officer that this child, he was uh, abusing maybe, you know, the mayor's kid or nephew or something and his job would... Be in jeopardy, and then they just threw me in cuffs and dragged me away for inciting a riot. Hmm. I may not have used the exact same language
2: I understand <laughs> um w- w- why did the New York dolls break up
1: uh, inertia I don't know you know, I think we got to a point where I like to think you know it was a project that we finished, but there was like. Factions in the group that were, you know, more interested in drugs than in playing music. And it just be kind of became, for me, I mean, I can only speak for myself, you know. it For me, it became untenable.
2: What did you think when you saw the Sex Pistols, the Ramones? Um, you, you, your, your band, the, the, the Dolls, preceded punk. But it was um, certainly influential in a lot of punk bands and had... The same sensibility in a lot of ways. So when 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 you saw that sensi- sensibility just really become um, so popular, uh, what did you think?
1: I thought every new idea begins as heresy and winds up as superstition. Um, <laughs> I think I never saw the Sex Pistols, but I saw the Ramones because they used to rehearse down the hall from. From me, I forget what ba- if I was in the dolls or in the my next band, but um I remember uh Joey Ramon came to the room I was rehearsing, and you know they they have these buildings in New York with a hundred bands playing at once it 's like it would drive a monk insane, <laughs> and uh he came by and said that he wanted me to come down the hall and hear his band and I went down the hall to hear his band and I I probably said, you know, you're a nice guy why don't you just give up, you know (laughs) I told the talking heads they should give up I mean, I would be the worst (laughs) A&R man in the history of show business because I tell all these bands who who when they're beginning that you're a good kid, why don't you get a real job and a house, you know so, I don't what do I know I didn't think anything about it being influenced by me or anything like that. It was just probably I had a headache and the music was really loud.
2: I want to skip ahead to the 80s and 90s when you performed a lot as Buster Poindexter. And... um you know the, the the New York Dolls were so um, into a kind of pre-punk sensibility, and uh, were were very high energy and um, very raw. Um, and you know Buster Poindexter is much more of a kind of lounge, more Vegas-oriented kind of persona. You know, uh, instead of in 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 uh, in drag on the cover you know, the Buster Bo- Poindexter
1: character is in a tuxedo. Um, and... It's all drag, Terry.
2: Well, that's the thing. No, no, but that's exactly the thing. You know, I
1: mean, I mean uh, Birkenstocks the, are drag. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, exactly. Is like, everybody everybody is saying something with their clothes you know so
2: have you always felt like you were standing back and knowing that that any any kind of drag that you were putting on any kind of outfit or whatever you were putting on for a performance was always that that you always knew it was some kind of drag or another
1: yeah yeah um you know the thing with poindex is we st- there was a little club uh like a saloon but- an Irish bar around the corner from my house. I was living in Gramercy Park. It was two blocks from my house, and it, it was kind of like my watering hole, and they would have bands there like Joe Turner or Charles Brown or Big May and they would do residencies there. So they would play like three or four nights a week for a month, say, you know, and there was a room upstairs where they would live. <laughs> Monday night, the back room was dark. So I had decided I was going to do this little, like, road barrel house kind of roadhouse show uh, where I could just sing whatever songs I wanted to sing, and I was going to do it for four Mondays. And I went in there, and I figured I'd use a a pseudonym so people wouldn't be coming in screaming for, you know, Funky (laughs) Butchique! So... um, I went in to do that, and I just picked whatever songs. I had been listening to a lot of jump blues at the time, but I also did, you know, like the Seven Deadly Virtues from Camelot, and, you know, whatever, just whatever songs I wanted to sing. And by the end of four weeks, I started doing weekends and it just kind of organically built into this it started out as a three piece band and wound up as like a 15 piece band so i think by the time it got to the national awareness it did have this kind of vegasy kind of uh idea to it but it started off more kind of like the louis prima days in the 50s of vegas you know what i'm saying
2: right 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 well that image was encouraged like on the cover of the buster poindexter album you're you're drinking um a martini
1: right
2: in a tuxedo with your pinky and then i was back on the see i was (laughs)
1: walking to work i was making a nice living and Mm -hmm. then we had a hit and you know when we all went to hell because we had to go back on the road Right.
2: Well, I, want, I, want, I, want, I want to play something from the Buster Poindexter era. and um, Don't play Hot, Hot, Hot. No, no, I wasn't going to. I was going to Thank play. Thank God. Were <laughs> you really tired of it?
1: It's the bane of my life.
2: Oh, uh, I was going to play Bad Boy. Okay. W- w- tell me why you recorded this. This is a cover.
1: Well, I don't know. It's just a good song. Uh, it was written by Lil Armstrong. And I always liked it ever since I was a kid.
2: Yeah, okay. Well, let's hear it. This is from the Buster Poindexter album. Cause you know are- Bad Boy, from David Johansson's album Buster Poindexter. David Johansson is my guest, and his first band, The New York Dolls, uh, has a reunion concert that was just released on CD and DVD. Um, It seems to me that you've had so many different characters you've inhabited as a a performer, and and I'm wondering how much you think your uh, uh, career as an actor has come into play in your career as a musician, you know, because before you were even in the New York Dolls, you were with the Ridiculous Theater Company in New York, and over the years you've been in, you know, a lot of movies as well.
1: Yeah, I guess, you know, there's a lot of... (laughs) The kind of acting involved. I, I, you know, I have this friend Elliot Murphy, who's a singer. He lives in Paris now. And I remember when I I started doing Buster Poindexter. He used to say to me, "David, you know, Buster Poindexter is so much more like you than David Johansson is. You know, if you get what I'm saying. In mm-hmm. other words." <laughs> With Buster, I really kind of went on stage and really didn't edit myself and just <laughs> kind of said whatever came to my mind and didn't have many filters. Whereas prior to that, in, in the period of my... Um, I guess you would call it solo career, although, you know, you're always in a band, so it's never really a solo career, but I had the David Johansson group or band, or whatever it was called, <laughs> and we used to open for a lot of bands and hockey rinks, you know, and uh, um, you kind of go out there, at that point I was going out there and kind of presenting this, what I thought, like, ideal picture of myself, you know what I mean? Just this uh, pleasant fellow, you know, whereas Buster was really kind of more warts and all, you know, and uh, I think by doing that it Helped me to be myself more, you know. Whereas, so now, now when I go on stage, I'm not like biting my nails, like, oh, what am I gonna do? What are we? How, how am I gonna be? Blah blah blah. I just don't even think about it because I'm just gonna go out there and essentially be whoever I am at that moment. You know what I'm saying?
2: You you once said, uh, back in the Buster Poindexter era, Buster can have this great life in the public eye and take the rap for everything, and then David can go home.
1: (laughs) Exactly. You know, it's funny, because my mother, when Buster came out, she said, you know, this is the most genius idea you've ever come up with. (laughs)
2: This is
1: great. And I think that was her idea, that, you know, Buster can take the rap, and politicians should do it. Now
2: You have a show on Sirius, which is one of the satellite radio stations. Oh, yeah. Who are you as a DJ? Are you just yourself, or do you have a... a...
1: I have a show called uh, The Mansion of Fun. Uh Uh-huh. And I'm kind of like Sri Rama Poindexter (laughs) Johansson. And uh, um, I'm I'm very taken with uh, Sri Ramakrishna lately because uh, I read a biography of his and thought, Man, that guy knew how to live, and uh, he called the planet the Mansion of Fun. So I named my show after that, and uh, I play a really diverse uh, bunch of music. You know, I play salsa, opera, blues, uh, rock and roll. Um, you know, you name it. I play a lot of Nino Rota music. I play you know whatever tickles my fancy. So it's really completely free form and I speak a lot of uh kind of Ken Wilbur type uh forward thinking philosophy.
2: Well David Johansson great to talk with you thank you so much.
1: Thank you,
0: Terry. David Johansson, co-founder of the 1970s band The New York Dolls, speaking with Terry Gross in 2004. He's the subject of a new documentary, co-directed by Martin Scorsese on Showtime, titled Personality Crisis, One Night Only. Here's David Johansson performing in his lounge lizard persona, Buster Poindexter, from the new documentary.
1: Tonight I'm going to do songs that uh, I wrote or co-wrote, I guess from when I was a teenager all the way up to now and the one thing i could say the unifying thing of my existence is that there's always been plenty of music uh-huh. Today I don't wanna shush it or shoo it away It belongs to the whole world The boys and girls It ain't just mine Like joy and love, it's always there I don't know how I tune in or why that I care But I can't pretend it don't feel like the end and everything is fine I feel exiled from the divine Me and these sad friends of mine We're just waiting down here Drinking beer And losing time Superfluous beauty Everywhere Why should I care What does it matter To
0: me Coming up, Justin Chang reviews the new film, The Eight Mountains. This is Fresh Air. Our film critic Justin Chang says The Eight Mountains is the most visually stunning movie in theaters right now, and one of the most moving. Winner of the jury prize at last year's Cannes Film Festival, it's an adaptation of Paolo Cognetti's best-selling novel about a decades-long friendship between two men who first meet as boys in the Italian Alps. Here's Justin's review.
3: Over the past several months, I've seen a few unusually heartfelt movies about male friendship, a subject that Hollywood likes to milk for laughs, but rarely treats with the sincerity and sensitivity it deserves. So it's been refreshing to encounter films that have recently bucked the trend, like Armageddon Time and the Oscar-nominated Close. The best of the bunch is the new Italian-language drama The Eight Mountains, which was written and directed by the Belgian filmmakers Felix van Groningen and Charlotte van der Meersch. Adapted from Paolo Cognetti's 2016 debut novel, it tells the story of two young boys who meet in the Italian Alps and forge a life-changing bond. The mountain scenery is spectacular. See this one in a theater if you can. But it's the richness of the emotional journey that stays with you. The story is narrated by Pietro, a young boy from the city of Turin, who's spending a summer in the Alps with his parents. It's there that he meets another boy about the same age, named Bruno, who lives on a small farm nearby. They become fast friends, and the mountain, with its scenic lakes and lush valleys, makes for a stunning open playground. The movie captures the rambunctious, rough-and-tumble joy of their time together, which is innocent and perfect and, of course, can't last. Summer ends, Pietro returns to Turin, and Bruno remains behind in the mountains. Apart from one brief meeting as teenagers, they don't really see each other again until decades later, when they're fully grown men. Pietro is now played by the terrific Italian star Luca Marinelli, and Bruno by the quietly charismatic Alessandro Borghi. Their long-overdue reunion is set in motion by the untimely death of Pietro's father. It's here that The Eight Mountains soars to life, as an achingly bittersweet drama about two pals returning to the place where they first met years earlier, and making up for all their time apart. I was often reminded of Brokeback Mountain, Even if Pietro and Bruno's love story is, as far as we can tell, a platonic one, they both seek refuge in nature and each other from their frustrations and disappointments. Pietro is in for some tough revelations. He learns that his dad, from whom he was estranged, had grown close to Bruno and had even become a kind of surrogate father figure. But while Pietro feels some jealousy and regret, he doesn't resent Bruno for it. If anything, it brings them closer together and even allows Pietro to make peace with a parent he never understood. Before long, the two decide to build a cabin in the mountains, something Pietro's father had dreamed of doing himself. It's hard work, but Bruno is a skilled carpenter and Pietro learns fast. They try to meet back at the house every summer. In the meantime, Bruno becomes a farmer and cheesemaker like his ancestors before him. He falls in love with a woman and has a daughter. Pietro becomes a writer and also falls in love with a woman whom he meets while traveling in Nepal. Even so, both men remain strangely unfulfilled. And one of the insights of the Eight Mountains is that everyone, whether they come from town or country, experiences unhappiness in their own unique way. Pietro, educated and restless, doesn't quite know who he is. He flits from one adventure to the next, unsure of where or how to settle down. Bruno, hardy and stubborn, has the opposite problem. He can't envision a life for himself away from these mountains, even when his bills begin to mount and the farm begins to fail. This is the first film directed by Vandermeersch, a longtime actor. Her co director and partner, Van Groningen, has made a number of earlier features, including the romantic tragedy, The Broken Circle Breakdown, and Beautiful Boy, an addiction drama starring Timothy Chalamet. He loves tormented characters and big, angsty emotions. But while The Eight Mountains churns with feeling, I came away admiring its subtlety and complexity, and yes, its majesty. It isn't just the movie's visual grandeur that wows you, it's the scale of it, the way it merges the epic and the intimate. At times the camera will pull back and show us the characters from a distance, dwarfed by the sheer magnificence of their surroundings, as if to suggest how small we all are in the scheme of things. But then it will cut to Pietro and Bruno, letting their faces and bodies fill the screen, and their lives suddenly don't seem so insignificant. Their love story is beautiful and unforgettable.
0: Justin Chang is the film critic at the L.A. Times. On Monday's show, journalist James Risen tells the story of Senator Frank Church, who exposed crimes and cover-ups of the CIA and FBI nearly 50 years ago. Risen says the church hearings, which revealed CIA assassination plots, led to congressional oversight of the intelligence agencies. Risen's book is The Last Honest Man. I hope you can join us. By the way, to keep up with what's on the show and get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Shorock. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support from Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Al Banks. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies.